0: A woohooer! A hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun
1: ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, Void or prohibited by loss. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. This is Mike Volo, host of Slate's Lexicon Valley. After a long hiatus, we are back with an all-new episode Monday, July 14th, and every two weeks thereafter.
2: We'll also be introducing a new feature with the great linguist and lexicographer Ben Zimmer.
1: Join us Monday, July 14th, for an all-new episode. The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GABFest for July 11, 2014, the May I Introduce You to President Harding and his friend Jerry edition. I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. I'm in Washington, D.C. today on the GABFest the catastrophe in Israel, how much worse can it get? Then, what Democratic majority are millennials actually going to become conservatives? That's what the New York Times said this week. And then Warren Harding, Warren Harding, that's a name we have not said much on the show. Warren Harding wrote saucy, extremely dirty letters to his mistress. Should we be shocked? Also, after that, there's going to be a Slate Plus segment, our bonus segment on the GabFest for you who are Slate Plus members. And in it, I talked to a couple of Hollywood screenwriters about why Hollywood and the popular culture is so obsessed with Washington these days. It was a really good conversation. You can go to sign up for Slate Plus by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Joining me today from New Haven is, of course, Emily Bazelon, Slate Senior Editor. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. You're the least Warren Harding-like person at Slate, I think.
3: Wow, what, what did I do to earn that accolade?
1: Like, you're just not... You, it doesn't seem like you, you're interested in Teapot Dome.
3: Oh, You're yeah. not like
1: a paunchy white guy.
3: I wouldn't name your penis Jerry. That's true.
1: You wouldn't name your penis Jerry. And then John Dickerson is on vacation, which left us with a little dilemma. When John Dickerson goes on vacation, what can you do? Fortunately, at our disposal, down the street, at the Atlantic, where he is, the national correspondent is Jeffrey Goldberg. When you want to talk about Israel... You pray that Jeffrey Goldberg will I come. I can talk
2: about Warren Harding's penis as well. You will be talking I about will, that. I, I, I will, and I will be. he was
1: circumcised?
2: Uh, he was not circumcised. I, 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 I am 100% sure.
1: <sighs> that is a really strong statement. I'm a 95% sure that he wasn't <laughs> circumcised. Uh, we, will, we will definitely talk about whether he was circumcised. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the Gab Fest. It's Thank great you for to having have me. you.
2: It's quite an honor to be sitting in for John Dickerson. I'm going to tell him that. It, it, yeah. I'm hoping I do so well that maybe you fire him and put me in my pl- and put me in his place, but I don't think that's impossible, gonna right? it's going to happen. a
3: nice happen. idea. No,
2: it it's not a nice idea. It's a terrible
1: idea. I want John to be successful. Well, John could not he wouldn't have the gravity when talking about the situation. Oh, he has the gravity least.
2: talking about anything.
1: That is kind of true actually. Yeah, he He's has very gravity. grave. He's, He's a grave person. He is grave.
3: He's not grave.
1: All right. The situation in Israel and the Gaza and the Palestinian territories is worse by the day. That's Hamas, grave. Hamas is firing rockets into Israel from Gaza, including long-range rockets that can reach the, the northern populated cities. Israel has been launching airstrikes in Gaza, apparently killed some dozens of people, and may be preparing for another ground invasion. The Israelis and the Palestinians both seem full of fear and hatred and anger, disappointment. Israelis about the horrifying kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teens. A few weeks ago, and then the terror of Hamas's rocket attacks, Palestinians about the retaliatory, apparent retaliatory murder of a Palestinian teenager, the Israeli airstrikes, the settlement expansion, and the just continued immiseration of Palestinians. So, Jeff, you have been covering this issue with rare subtlety. Is there anything different in the dynamic between Israel and Palestinians over the past few weeks that? The change. I mean, it's already been a kind of despairing situation. Has is anything different that makes us should make us despair more?
2: Uh, more than the usual, more Middle than the East usual despair. Yeah. Well, what should make us despair more than the usual despair is that the rest of the Middle East is even worse. Uh, and what's interesting about this week is that we've stopped talking completely about the Middle East. We just passed the hundred and seventy thousand death mark in Syria. No one seems to care about that at the moment because this is going on in the Israeli Palestinian context. You know, hatred just gets more deeply embedded every time there's a death or a, or, or a rocket or, you know, time your children get their house blown up or your children have to spend the night living in a bomb shelter. It just embeds this more deeply. It is proof, if nothing else, that Hamas is an illogical organization and, if nothing else, it proves that the status quo is not sustainable. But this is the third round of this Gaza-Israel war and they, they have... Uh, they have the same features. You know, they, ne- they never, they they will end, it will end uh, and then it'll happen again and that's maybe the most depressing part. Right,
1: right. there's this phrase mowing the lawn. Which, mowing the lawn, yeah. Which is a, the idea that there, there's the, shoot- it's a cop
2: phrase, actually, it's an American cop phrase. So what you does know, it mean? Which you, go, you go into a neighborhood, you arrest the drug dealers and, you know, and you, they come out and you gotta mow the lawn again, put them back in jail. It's the same thing in, in, in Gaza now, I think some Israeli general used it. It's basically, you know, you, you, you go in, you destroy as many rocket launchers as possible, and then you know that in a year from now, you're going to go have to mow again. Different, this is one thing that's different, is that now, as much as Israel hates Hamas, Egypt, which controls Gaza's southern border, hates Hamas even more. The government of Egypt is radically opposed to Hamas, and so Hamas is going to have, Hamas isn't a bad bad position anyway, because it's not going to have an easy time getting rockets uh, in the same way that it was during the, you know, the Morsi period or before that, during the period of chaos. So I'm sort of amazed that they're spending as many rockets as they are, which suggests either they're completely foolish or that they have more rockets than people thought.
3: I think of this as the hourglass where the sand is running out because of the shifting demographic picture where there are going to be soon more or close to as many Palestinians and Arabs as Jewish Israelis if you include the West Bank in thinking about greater Israel. And that seems to me that it's not exerting the intense urgent pressure on Bibi Netanyahu's government as I always want it to. Is that because it's just not not immediate enough given all the violence and the hatred that takes precedence?
2: That's an interesting question. Gaza's a a little bit of a separate piece of it, because Gaza's not going to be absorbed into Israel with any luck. It'll be part of an independent, standalone Palestinian state. It might be absorbed into Egypt in some sort of future scenario that we can't imagine. Lucky Egypt. Yeah, you know, nobody wants it. But on the general point, yeah, I mean, uh, your your point is interesting because it goes back to what I was just saying about the status quo being unsustainable. Part of the reason the status quo is unsustainable is that uh, the demographics are slowly shifting. I mean, it's not as dramatic as next year or the year after, but... You know, there's this belief uh, on the part of the the right in Israel that you could just kind of maintain this, uh, and Israel will be fine, and the Palestinians will get used to it. And it's just not—I don't think that's true. Um, This doesn't feel very status quo-like. This feels pretty bad. It's the Middle East, so it could always be worse, obviously. uh, That's the tourism motto, you know. What? No, I, I would say, though, certainly for Iraq right now, you know, it, we're not Syria, and Syria going to have, we're not Iraq, as a tourism motto. But yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something, and the, and the frustrating part, I think, uh, well, the frustrating part for me is that I'm convinced, based on personal experience and, and talking to him, that Netanyahu knows that this is an actual problem, that either pathway isn't good. You can't keep him, but you can't let him go, is sort of where he is, and my argument is that... If you allow the West Bank and possibly Gaza to become independent, you might have a terrible security problem on your hands in future years. If you don't, you're definitely going to have a problem in future years. So it's a choice between two you know, really unpalatable uh, scenarios.
1: Right. So Israel – if Israel keeps the territories mm-hmm. and allows – which it will never do – allows – Palestinians become citizens, it... it, it well, becomes, it,
2: you know, never say never. Well, yeah. But it
1: becomes, a, it, it no longer is a Jewish state. Right, it no longer, right. is, it
2: no longer just, is the haven for it, the
1: Jewish, the one Jewish state in the world, the haven for the Jewish
2: people, et cetera, it, et cetera, et cetera,
1: If it keeps the territories and doesn't allow Palestinians to become citizens, it becomes an apartheid state.
2: Right, or like a permanent Jim Crow or whatever you want, a limited autonomy or some, you know, nonsense that's not really sustainable in the international system. Um,
1: and therefore there's only one well or there's a third solution which I keep on saying just because I it feels to me like Israel doesn't seem to me that Israel is ever going to enfranchise Palestinians in the Israel in Israel at least in this that one can see yeah, yeah, in the yeah, next yeah, yeah. you know 25 years absolutely why does no one in Israel say, let's just expel everyone from this land? Because it's wrong. I know. Of co- it's, and it's not wrong to Expel all the Palestinians people.
3: from the West.
2: Well, first expel, of all, first of all let's everyone. just go through
1: that. There are A,
3: millions of them. A, it's
2: morally impossible. B, it's physically impossible. Well, what's going to happen? I mean, the most likely scenario is that, is that the Palestinians will be expelled with their land, which is to say this unilateral idea that, you know, you can't – if the Israeli view, and it's grounded in some reality, is that we're never going to actually – cut a political deal with the Palestinians, what what we should at least do is get out of their hair, disentangle ourselves as much as possible. This is the tragedy of the settler movement. The settler movement is the vanguard of binationalism. It's not the vanguard of Zionism. It's the vanguard of like mixing everybody up and, and, you know, instead of working toward a divorce, what you're aiming for is an amicable divorce where the Palestinians go that direction, Israelis go that direction, and everybody kind of just survives. But
1: given that does seem to be the solution, if you were. And now
2: knows that that's that's the solution, by the
1: way. it doesn't seem that the settler movement is weaker. It seems that the settler movement is progressing stronger and, stronger and a larger portion. Well, he of the gives into he gives in into them
2: because he has politics, just like everybody else's politics, and he wants to. Well, I mean, this right. is the problem. This is, this is the, the short problem. term. Yeah, this is the problem with his politics: is that he's not, in my opinion brave enough to tell the right wing that so you're not you're not helping here and i'm going to risk my governing coalition to make that point although he knows that the polls show that the majority of israelis agree with him about this assessment so i mean won't that be
3: his failure as a leader forever and if he maybe...
2: doesn't if he doesn't do it yeah if he doesn't do it i mean if he doesn't so you out haven't
3: lost hope that he might get some courage
2: um I haven't lost all hope. No, I haven't lost all hope. I think sometimes reality will actually force them to do the thing that he might not want to
1: what do. What are the domestic political movements within Israel that set up countervailing forces to him? Is there a, is there a sort of center? Oh, no, is the there pl- a center that can be that can rule.
2: The problem is that there are not many credible center-left politicians. You know, the tragedy of the moment, the real tragedy of the moment is that Netanyahu is the only politician who could deliver 70 or 75% of Israelis to a peace deal, a compromise, precisely because they know he's a hardhead. The fact that he's a hardhead, of course, makes it very hard for him to actually go ahead and do this thing. The left will not make peace between the Palestinians, they, because they won't have enough credibility in the, Israeli, in the Israeli center to do it. So it has to be a right-winger. It has to be... Look, it was going to be Ariel Sharon, but he had a stroke. Before that, it was going to be Yitzhak Rabin, who wasn't a right winger, but he was certainly but a hard-headed they general. Him. Right? I mean, so you know, strokes and assassin and assassins can change the the world, as we see. And so Netanyahu, it's really on him for the time being to try to figure out a way. But you know, and by the way, let's just not absolve the Palestinian leadership of being weak, need and and vacillating, and and not being able to sort of talk to their own people honestly about the situation. I mean, but that's been true throughout Palestinian history. From the 30s on, they haven't been able to say, oh, look, by the way, the Jews are here and, the Jews are here, and that they are from here, and so they're going to have a country here too, so let's just deal with that reality. They haven't really come over that. On the other other hand, the Palestinian leader, Abu Mazen, is probably the most moderate Palestinian leader we're ever going to see. So say. you
1: did this inter- interesting interview with Martin Indyk, maybe at I Aspen. I was
3: going to ask about that.
1: Well, but, why don't you both ask? No. No, David started. Well, well so you did finish interview question. with Martin Indyk, and, and one, he said something which I just found to be incredible, like in, as in not believable, that we were this close to a deal. And we're for, always this close yeah, to a deal. Yeah, so it's – Everybody who's listening, hold your fingers like an inch apart, and then you'll see how close everybody always thinks uh, a deal is. Yeah. But he he said, oh, that sort of the dynamic you're talking about, that, that Abu Mazen kind of got near a deal and – Look, I don't believe, yeah, and I,
3: froze because Netanyahu wouldn't stop the settlements.
2: Yeah, from that's continuing. kind of nonsense, though. That's kind of like oh, that, that's, so that, tell us why that, it's that, nonsense that, because Abu Mazen and Arafat were negotiating for years when settlements were growing, and you have to remember that most of the settlement growth is in the blocks that the Palestinians already have said is going to be they're going to be attached to Israel in exchange for land swaps. They're a convenient excuse, and they certainly what settlement growth does is signal to pal- average Palestinians, non-radical whatever Palestinians that oh hey the Israelis really aren't that interested in giving me a state. Abu Mazen knows exactly what's going on and could have jumped over this, leapfrogged this by saying, all right, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Let's actually see your proposals. But Abu Mazen, as of March... I guess, March or April of this year, basically never even responded to American proposals. I mean, literally, John Kerry would say, how about this? I've got Netanyahu to go to here. What do you say? And Alba Mazin literally said, I'll get back to you and never got back to him.
1: So it was not really... A, he gets a lot of email, probably. Uh,
2: yeah, it must be.
1: Do, do you think that the U.S. has any role to play right now?
2: Yeah, and the U.S. can keep things from getting worse. The same role it has in other parts of the Middle East, you know, try to ameliorate, try to, try to, you know, suspend. It <laughs> seems to be working in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rock, no, I mean, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. You know, it, here's a situation in which the U.S. is Israel's closest ally for any number of reasons. The U.S. gives the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and it can't get either party to do what it wants. So then, then you hear people are saying, well, what we need to do is get more deeply involved in trying to get the Shia and Sunni in Iraq to get along. And you're like, really? You know, people who already hate us are going to listen to our prescriptions. So it's sort of like, uh, on the other hand, yeah, I think when the U.S. withdraws from these problems, the problems tend to get worse. So having active diplomacy is pretty useful. And at a certain point, the U.S. is going to tell Israel, okay, that's enough of this round of the war. And and they're going to get Turkey and gutter to tell Hamas, okay, chill out with the rockets. And then we'll go back to the, the status quo for a while and then this will happen again.
3: Jeff, do you have any sympathy for the boycott, divestments and sanctions movement? The argument that I've been thinking about lately, which I'm confused by, is that most of the time when you have terrible behavior by a state, you have an authoritarian regime. And so if you boycott, you know, academics or companies, it's not necessarily going to make any difference. But Israel is a very vibrant democracy in which Netanyahu, however else is in charge, is responsive to public opinion. And so – the argument for this movement, which I hesitate to make because the idea of boycotting anything in Israel is – I'm kind of allergic to it. But the argument is that you put pressure on the voters, on the people who can influence public opinion and that it could actually sway Israel in the direction in – in, toward feeling a more urgent sense. But how do you know that it's really don't feel an state? urgent
2: sense? How do you know that? I
3: think some of them do, but I yeah, don't I think, think it's controlling the outcome enough right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe they're the ones who are realistic about the the state of the Middle East, though, and we're not being realistic, sitting six thousand miles away. I mean, maybe they're, well, they're maybe, maybe, maybe they're the ones they're... saying, "You want me to give up territory now?" And and we've seen when we give up territory, it's filled by Al Qaeda. No, thank you. But going to your point, I'm completely allergic to this because boycotts have traditionally been a weapon used against Jews, obviously most yes. notoriously in World War II, but going back, you know, obviously centuries. So I'm allergic to it. I mean, this is a, this is. A, a legitimate debate, you know, obviously in in American foreign policy circles, what does Israel respond to? Does Israel respond better to incentives and a close embrace, like a hug? Or does it respond to pressure? I, I had an interesting conversation once with Hillary Clinton about this. And Hillary says, and I think this is probably, probably correct, that Israelis will take bold leaps if you're holding their hand. Like if you want to, you want to help Israel jump off a cliff, grab their hand, go with them. When you pressure Israel, the, the national tendency is to kind of go up Masada, you know, and say thanks, but you know we we understand our history better than than you do, and this is not going to end well, and so we're gonna we're just gonna. So get that it.
3: also involves jumping off a cliff. I will just. It, it, right?
2: it, it ends <laughs> with didn't it, it, it. Didn't it jump. Didn't jump. See here's the no thing. It's the Middle East. Stop everything. Them everything ends with a cliff.
1: <laughs> everything ends <laughs> right. with a cliff. I but,
3: guess that's the problem. Jeff,
1: okay. I want actually, Jeff, because we have you here. So we've had discussions on the show historically, and Emily and I have have talked about it. And one reason we don't talk about Israel very much on the Gabfest is that it gets so poisonous. It's so difficult. You're basically the only Jew because you appointed Wait, yourself I'm not, for you the only Jewish. Jew. I'm the only Jew? You're the only Jew. Wow. You're the only American Jew who is able to kind of walk on both sides. Like you're able to say things that are quite critical of Israel and Israeli policy, quite critical of American policy, where people don't sort of cut your head off. Not well, not li- yet, not not. Literate. But why is it a sub? It's not a discussion that most people want to get into because it becomes so poisonous and so. I've actually so, noticed that on Twitter. So to this hard, week,
2: by the way. I've noticed that 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 people who generally comment about everything just stay completely
1: away from right. this because it's just a swamp. Right. So so, what's your what's your advice? I mean, my advice. Like, yeah, like Peter Beinart, who I know. You know, everyone has problems with what Peter says. But Peter's like a he's a smart, yeah. interesting person who. Like wades into this with way you know with arguments yeah. that you probably think are wrong and some just, well, and boycott, ju- but just gets example. just gets well, he's not battered. pro boycott. He's pro boycott of settlements, which is different. He just okay, gets badder. So, Thank so you. How, what is it? How is how can this discussion in America be done in such a way that Jews feel like they can talk about it without? I think there's actually
2: more discussion in the – are you talking about in the Jewish community or outside the Jewish community? There's more discussion now than there's ever been. I think J Street's rise has been a good thing. I don't agree with everything that they say, but it's created some legitimate space for that kind of conversation. You know, this is life or death. So it becomes emotionally fraught very easily. And the problem for people who are walking a certain line, which is they, people who say, I love Israel. I wish its government weren't quite so stupid. The problem with those is that every time, and I, I see this happens to my own work when I'm critical of something in the Israeli government, anti-Semites will literally adopt it and say, look, Jeff Goldberg says that Netanyahu X, Y, or Z. and so it But becomes, you can't
3: let that control you, right? Well,
2: I don't let it control me, but a lot, I understand why other people say, you know, you know what? I, I don't want to go down this road. I just don't want to talk about this. And you know, there's a, there's a kind of analytical smartness at a certain point where you say, I mean, I've been writing about the subject for a long time. It hasn't gotten any better because I'm writing or not writing. So I think a lot of people just say, why do I have to bother writing about this? I'm going to write about something, you know, easy like abortion or, you know, or um, gay, was, marriage. gay marriage. Yeah, yeah, that was a Progress. Yeah. No, I mean, why bother? Maybe you should stop
1: a, and everything would get better. Maybe. I, maybe I'll try that after this war. Now we have word from our sponsor, which this week is Stamps.com. You know the feeling you get when you can get things done with just a click of your mouse. It cannot get more convenient than that. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk, thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox and you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, if you use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's stamps.com, enter GABFEST. In a story for the New York Times- Upshot section this week, the always delightful David Leonhardt makes a tentative case that today's young people, millennials and those a bit younger, may not be the reliable Democratic voters that Democrats have been counting on. Leonhardt's basic claim is that voters are strongly shaped by the political and economic environment of their teen and young adult years and that the weak economy and the fights about Obamacare and various other things and the general sense that government can't get anything done will push these youngsters away from the democrats and presumably therefore towards the republicans that obama essentially will be held responsible for the sluggish economic growth and the inequality of the past 15 years we're not here to debate the question about whether it is reasonable to hold obama responsible for these things which it is not but whether in fact this political swing will happen so emily Hmm, hearing, you really
3: narrowed the terms here. I well, like no, that.
1: like let's, yeah, let's not. We're not talking about the substance. We're just talking about like is is this a real phenomenon? Are the millennials going to be driven away from from the Democratic Party because the economy is just in the in the toilet? And has So
3: been. I found this article really – this argument really implausible because there's so many other factors that are pushing the millennials toward the Democrats. There's the increasing number of Latinos who are going to be in the country who, unless things change, break like 70 percent Democratic, I think. There's the social issues that Democrats win on with this age group in particular, like gay marriage and legalizing marijuana. And also millennials poll high – In a way that's heartwarming to me for broad based government intervention, for the idea that you're supposed to fight inequality and other evils with social programs put in place by the government. And the Republican Party right now is um, so very much against all of the things I just named, but that one in particular. And I also feel like don't people most people hold Obama somewhat responsible, but get that it was also factors beyond his control in the Bush administration and, there, and the, that the recession in a lot of ways preceded him and he was left to pick up the pieces. Isn't that something that we've absorbed as a country?
2: As a, Let no. me speak on behalf of the country when I say yes Please. and no. Um, Is this Israel you're speaking on behalf of? Uh, no, I'm speaking on behalf of Palestine at okay. this point. No, I thought David told us not to talk about whether it's true or not. So I'm trying to follow your arcane rule.
3: Yeah, he was really authoritarian. Yeah, no,
2: I know. He really was. I I tend to... I mean, when I... You know, when I read this piece, um, and I love David, when I read this piece, I kind of wish that he didn't write it so tentatively. I mean, if you're going to go... Go for a leap, go make the leap, and there were so many caveats in it that I thought he probably doesn 't really believe this i would have, I would have liked to seen more on this. I think emily 's exactly right unless the Repu- i mean the, the, the real variable is whether the Republican party changes i think not whether uh, not whether millennials blame Obama for stagnation uh, if the If the Republican party no longer seems anti immigrant, no longer seems opposed to gay marriage, no longer seems to pot legalization and all these other things that you mentioned, then there could be a pronounced shift if the Senate goes Republican, and then we have the next years of a a Congress in which both houses are controlled by Republicans, maybe that's uh, ultimately good for the Democrats, because people will blame
1: them, people will blame the Republicans for for whatever stagnation they see. I I have a different take than you guys, which is that the Republican Party clearly is not a credible alternative, and they're not presenting any vision. The basic project of the conservative movement, and particularly parts of it in the last decade or so, has been to strongly discredit the idea of government being effective at anything at all. Mm. And they've, they've got plenty of good evidence and they've, and they've acted to make government less effective and to slow things down and grind gears. And it's a project that has made people, I think, much more skeptical about government generally. If you look at the polling, people are more skeptical that government can do things. They don't believe in government. That is a recipe for moving people away from the Democratic Party, all kinds of voters, including young voters, away from the Democratic Party because they look and they don't see a government that gets things done. Therefore, they are less less engaged with the project of Democrats, which is generally to get government to do better things. That doesn't mean they become Republicans, but it does mean hmm. that they are less Democratic. And I think those are two different points. And to me, what's what's alarming is not – I don't see all these young voters – Going out and and becoming Ted cruz' acolytes and getting all enthusiastic behind that theres you know that 's going to be a small minority. What I do see is a large, highly disaffected group of young people who will have be facing poor economy, poor economic prospects, tons of debt who will be vulnerable to some other form of sweeping populist movement something something which is not necessarily what either the Democrats or the Republicans are offering right now and that 's kind of scary
3: if you get nihilistic about the government and it 's ability to change the social conditions you're talking about, then what have you got? I mean, the, this is where I think conservatives, I mean, they have, a few of them have some decent ideas about this, right? But not the ones in power. And so if that happened and we had that kind of populism, David, I feel like it would be a more lefty version of it, which could be a good thing from my point of view.
1: It might be. I just feel like it's, it's uncertain, that, that where I feel like that one reason we're entering a very treacherous political time well, is that they, that 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 neither party seems to offer. I, I think that what you're believe. what
2: you're what you're saying to David Leonhardt is expand the parameters of what you're writing about because there might be something wholly new coming down the road right. that's not the usual bifurcation. I'm just sitting here trying to figure out what John Dickerson would say, and then I'm going to try to say it. But I John have Dickerson you know. would have like six polls at his he, he would Here have I was going to say he would, he would cross his actually, arms and look thoughtful, and then have something very thoughtful to say. And I'm tr- I have sorry, a I'm John trying.
3: Dickersonian poll point to make. Dickersonian which is the polls? That's a great yes, word. That's a word. The polls about millennials show that they actually do think that the government can make social change and they want to give Is the that government because they're just young and because young people are yeah, young optimistic?
1: People, right. Isn't that right? I think so. Well, I- but
3: you're arguing that they're going to immediately lose that as they age and that's the end of them.
1: I'm sure relative to older people, the millennials believe government can make change more than our generation does. But relative to what our generation believed 20 years ago or what our parents' generation believed 40 years ago, I bet they're lower. I bet their millennial confidence in government is lower than Gen X's or the, the – Oh, absolutely. The, the, I don't think the, that's necessarily
3: true. Can someone please, some dear listener right, who knows the answer to this question because I know you're out there, write in and prove David and Jeff wrong?
1: What do you guys mm-hmm. – how do you Make guys feel? Day. This is a totally separate point, but we're all of the Gen X. We're all in our in our 40s. We had a really great run as Gen X for from like 1992 until –
2: until the Three years came.
1: ago. So, no, people paid attention to us. They cared. We, we've yeah. now been surpassed. Like the millennials, they're a bigger generation. They're so yeah. Instagram-y. They are really And they are, uh, really and they are snapchatting they're, they're, Right now they're all Just live snapchatting with Our podcast And, and they're the
3: new new thing Who cares about us
1: But Right so how do you guys feel That now that we've they been They still want us to pay For that no, That's the thing how, how Well it...
3: they have a lot Of college alone issues How do I feel bad Who wants to get old and, and Oh I don't feel bad And what turned into Chopped liver
2: Well first of all Chopped liver is delicious Second of all I mean this I don't want to be eaten This is as inevitable As the tides Or whatever else Is inevitable First of all I don't think we're that irrelevant? Uh,
1: why am I? Am I deluding myself? He, you're yes, looking you're at me. Yes, you're like, David is looking at me like I'm deluding myself. Well, I, it's not like I do. You know, there's there's still whatever 50 million of us or something, and we can. You know, we will sell depends to them and Meta we have to, to keep them,
3: working because otherwise the economy's really going to fall apart.
1: It is. It's, it's seen looking over here at intern Max just smugly. Smugly he doing. Doesn't look smug. He's smugly doing something. No. Well,
3: he is ready to he's take over the world, or will
1: be soon. Way. He was taking a selfie. Oh, he was taking he was... an imaginary selfie. <laughs> now they take <laughs> imaginary selfies yeah, too. Yeah, that's so cool. Who knew? Yeah, youth today. So apparently, we should be a generation that is quite Republican because we grew up. We hit our hit our prime in the Republican heyday in the in Reagan. Bush. Do do you guys feel that we are part of a conservative generation? I feel like sort of no. temperamentally, I think we are... We might live in, I think we live in uh, particular ghettos.
3: Yeah, what would not, we know? We live
1: on the yeah, coast.
2: I don't know if that's something you could ask us. Yeah, we live on just one coast. <laughs>
1: exactly. But you don't, huh, I feel like people of our cohort are, in fact, not conservative in how they vote in, in the worlds that yeah. we run in, but they're actually more, more prudish and... Are more How are you wildly generalizing?
3: Like based on what? I that's he such doesn't like Instagram.
1: Large I think he statement. Doesn't like people like who use you Instagram. rode the
3: subway with some Gen Xers the other day. I, <laughs> I, what are you talking about? He's interviewed a taxi, taxi driver,
1: and he's <laughs> <extrapolating>. <laughs> He was a forty-three-year-old taxi driver. <laughs> extrapolating. Example: you Walking through the airport at the
3: you know yogurt yeah. stand.
2: I mean, I think we're parents, and so you know when you you. you Parenting, obviously, leads you to certain conservative conclusions about the way the world is organized. And, and, and it's a little bit mysterious and off-putting when your children come home with new inventions and new ways of communicating that you didn't hear about. But, I mean, I don't think that makes us well, conservative. All right, here's a, here's no, it's a-, a
3: relief because at least they are still the new, new thing. And they're going to save you and be your tech support. And the great satisfaction,
2: by the way, comes knowing that eventually they'll be replaced. And then they'll be able, to, we'll be able to wipe those smug looks right. off their faces.
1: Well, the one data point I would use, the one data point I use is that I well, believe our person. cohort.
3: Oh, I shamed him into a data point.
1: One, our cohort is the lowest drug-using cohort. We used drugs way less than people who were before us and people who came after
2: and us. Well, and we eat we're a lot more organic to the crack food. epidemic. You know, the last time I saw David Leonhardt was three days ago in a Whole Foods. How's that for a data point? Yeah. That's an awesome. What was he thing. doing? He was shopping for. Was, did some, he buying conservative? No, food to he was food? buying lettuces, different exotic that lettuces. That is
3: wholly unsurprising.
2: Holy, that was good. Holy, that was good. I don't think. No, do do you guys have that. anything else to say? This is. We don't have any. I just to say can't wait to get to the Warren Harding conversation.
3: I'm just waiting for you to bring up more fake data points. <laughs>
1: Oh my God. This is. Dickerson. is she always rough
2: on you? I don't. I mean, yes. I, yes. I, yes, I, I listen to this, but I don't, that, quite that I don't hear that edge. I don't hear that edge. So Dickerson is the uniter, right? You're the divider, and
1: he. I'm the divider. Dickerson is and Dickerson the uniter. Is the uniter. Not a divider, yeah. And Emily is the, is the wisdom figure. Oh, wow.
3: No. I don't think so. Anyway.
1: All right. So. You're going to get a chance right now. So we have a great new show on Slate Podcast and Slate Podcast land, the Slate Podcast Empire, which is The Gist with Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, you know from Hang Up and Listen. And he has this daily show where he's doing interviews with newsmakers. And then he is also he has this thing called The Spiel where he is riffing on something that really interests him. And Mike is the world's best talker. He is unbelievably entertaining. He's really fun. And you should subscribe to The Gist. But just to entice you to subscribe to The Gist, we're going to air a brief segment from a recent show where he talked about, you know, that famous Ernest Hemingway, the six words short story uh, for sale, baby shoes never worn. And so Mike just did an amazing exploration of what of that story and like dug into it. And it's really, really funny. So now listen for that.
0: So the Ritz Carlton Hotel is inviting fans fans anyway well-heeled travelers to submit six-word stories that they call six-word wow's about staying in the Ritz Carlton and they'll be turned into ads here are some examples honeymoon lost camera priceless memories reimagined dinner till dawn laughter years regained dinner till dawn here's your 4:30 a.m. pork chop sir all right I got one I got one sat on bed naked how many others did too don't think. And that is why they don't do 11 word essays. Anyway, this whole six word fiction, it's sometimes called flash fiction. I guess back when flash mobs were seen as cool and not as a new way to say wilding to scare Fox News viewers. Anyway, six word fiction stems from this story about Hemingway. Probably didn't happen. But Hemingway composed the world's shortest short story, and it was the following For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Ah. Now let's for a second put aside the fact that the Ritz-Carlton is launching an ad campaign inspired by a terse tale of infant mortality. But there's this... Anyone who has ever had a baby has also had at least one pair, and possibly many pairs of baby shoes that were never worn. There's no tragedy involved, right? There's no story involved. Right now on eBay, uh, I looked up baby shoes. For four-year-olds, there are 13,147 never worn pair on sale. So then I said, all right, well, what about specifically? Let's think about Hemingway. Killed himself in Ketchum, Idaho. I went to Craigslist in Idaho. In Boise, never worn baby shoes, size five. Tag still on an original price 42 exclamation it just isn't the sad tragedy that hemingway imagined for sale baby shoes only becomes a short story when we ponder it and when i tell you this is a short story of great import it's actually a remarkable feat of filling in the blanks of the meaning of a thing being almost entirely influenced by the context of the thing baby shoes never worn is a literary genre with a deep debt to a ubiquitous ebay offering for sale pillow mint never licked ah
1: so now we're going to inaugurate a segment where every week we're going to talk about Warren Harding i truly think we have gone however many years in the show i'm not sure anyone has ever said warren harding's name can you I remember i need the
3: warren Har- harding primer to get through this conversation warren
1: gamaliel harding great can you please give name.
3: us a few basics Biblical. about
1: the man I, I feel about Warren Harding. So I had this... Do you have feelings for Warren no, this, Harding? there was this friend of ours, this Norwegian friend of ours, who in the mid-90s came to Washington. And uh, he was a friend of a friend. He was living in Hannah's uh, group house. For a couple months, and he was here because he was researching his dissertation, and his dissertation was on the subject of U.S. relations, uh, diplomatic relations with Greenland during the interwar period. <laughs> and so, whenever I think of like the what is irrelevance, I think of, of of Stein's dissertation, and that's how I kind of how I feel about Warren Harding. So Warren Harding died in office after a brief and scandalous presidency, but it wasn't scandalous for the reasons we're about to talk what about. What did he die from, by the way? Do you know? I don't know.
2: I don't know what he died from.
1: Max, get on that. So we're going to find out how he died. But now comes news this week that as a senator, and I guess as a, as a governor, lieutenant governor, he carried on a scandalous affair, <laughs> an affair with Carrie Phillips, and he exchanged a very racy correspondence with Ms. Phillips. He called his penis Jerry. That's about the major thing that I remember. Talked a lot about her thighs. And then when he became president or when he was elected president, the RNC and Harding himself... Paid her off when she blackmailed him. She threatened to go public with us, and he came up with a bunch of money. I think they sent her on a foreign tour.
2: Well, also, by the way, she was a German spy,
1: and she made yeah. she was definitely a German sympathizer. sympathizer. She was pro Jerry. She was pro Jerry in, all in So many ways.
3: Mm, that was a pretty good pun.
1: Comprehensively pro Jerry. Anyway, there was all this correspondence of his, and. In the 60s, it was discovered, you know, the people who knew, I guess, knew there was correspondence with him and his mistress, but the family donated it to the Library of Congress on the condition that it not be made public for 50 years, and 50 years have now passed. Did you guys note the funny reason why the family wouldn't make it public? They were... They were a feared publication would tarnish Harding's legacy. Like, it would have helped him. It would, at least people would have what known are you something about,
3: about? Him. No, it would not. It, it, people like right, would right, know right, him right, for something idea. other
1: right, than. No,
2: no, no. I mean, I think the best you can say Warren Harding, not Buchanan, was yeah. like the great, you know, I mean, not the worst president, maybe the second worst president, right?
3: You're going by the theory that, like, no press is bad press here. This is not, if you have a dignified president in your family, you don't want Jerry to be the last word in the. Hundred years right, later. Why is this?
1: Why is the story funny? Why is this, Why is why? the story? Because
2: he wrote about pillowy breasts. I mean, it's automatically funny. Didn't he use the word pillowy? I think it's all about. Which is the also Jerry. just a w-
1: really weird adjective. For yeah, breasts, it's not but... hot,
2: by the way. It's not a hot word. Pillowy. Yeah. You know, I... maybe they made pillows differently back <laughs> in the <laughs> day. It's
3: comforting all... word.
1: Yeah, it's more comforting. It's like the comfort food. But, of okay, but sex right, words. I want to get. To, I want to interrogate this question <laughs> of why this is. Fu- why is it funny? Because it. Because he's like. Just look at a picture of the guy. Look at him.
2: Look at him. He was born with pants. I mean, you know, he, he was. He, you know, this guy does not look like a bubbling volcano of erotic passion. So also, it's, it's so
3: intimate, and it's from a long time ago. And the idea that someone a hundred years ago in office would be writing these kinds of because they're they're kind of. I mean, the writing is awful, but it's also sort of <laughs> sweet and attempting to be sexy and completely failing. I think that's what makes. You think it was sexy? His comp- Jerry was an act of genius.
1: Yeah. Do you think that at the time that was like like sexting, what he was writing? Was yes. it as dirty? I've
2: asked myself that question. Is that as dirty as you could go right. in the teens? That plain blue. Um, maybe it was. I bet it wasn't, actually. But maybe it's as dirty as a lieutenant governor could go. Maybe they didn't know any other words for all the various
1: Isn't
3: D.H. Lawrence and Oscar Wilde, aren't they writing around this time? I mean, I would say that they are dirtier. Or they're certainly better at writing about sex.
1: I right. did this. I interviewed this uh, porn star yesterday for this project I'm doing. She was awesome. Uh, that, that's but burying but here the we, lead. It's called burying the lead. And and so I was. She was talking about when she appears in period. There, so there are period porn movies, and she had just been in a like some period porn movie, and that's not also that's period. I got. We got old, it. Old we, time. we got it. And and she said, you know what? We have to make sure the dialogue is. Fits. So part, I'm about to use a, a profanity. She said, you can't scream, fuck me, baby, if it's, you know, if it's like supposed to be Victorian era. Right. era uh, what do right.
3: you scream? Ravish
1: and, my pillowy breasts. Well, so I actually didn't ask that follow-up question. But it did. I did feel like, well, but there, surely that whatever the equivalent of fuck me, baby, Warren Harding was. They was, was... Say that?
2: How do you know they didn't say that back in the day?
1: You don't know. You don't know. Yeah, no, maybe they did. Maybe
2: they did. Maybe she's wrong. Maybe maybe it was crazier than these letters. Maybe there'd be a second, I don't think it a second tranche right. of letters 50 years from now that are just out of control.
3: No, I think that it's an anachronism. And the porn star is correct. She needed a different phrase. I think fuck I is know, a very, very old
1: it. word, isn't it? It's an extremely old. Yeah, but language. that doesn't mean
3: that people used it and well, deployed it as they do now.
1: That's true. Do you guys think it's okay that they bought off the mistress? Was that okay? That's the scandal. But do you that's think... impe. That seems impeachable. Actually,
2: I mean, not to you know bring up uh, analogies to the Monica situation, but it's not the affair that seems to be. Well, first of all, the fact that she may or may not have been dallying with German intelligence during World War One seems pretty. I mean, that's a pretty good story if it's if it's true. And the payoff is um, is a mega scandal. That would you know that would have brought down the presidency if he hadn't conveniently died. For reasons that we still don't know.
3: Isn't this very Kennedy-esque in which we might argue that we're better off having been shielded from all this information as a country, even though, of course, it's titillating and newsworthy and we would report the hell out of it now if we possibly could?
2: I kind of wish I was shielded from this conversation at this moment. I I mean, I don't know. I think we're all journalists and we all err on the side of everything should come out and we should understand our leaders in, in their fullness, even if it's
1: unpleasant. Wait, I'm going to pause for a brief interruption, oh, no. which is the war how did Warren Harding die? So Wait, can we take guesses? Yeah. This is not the guy
2: who died from like drinking a gallon of milk and eating cherries, right? Wasn't No, that, that was uh Who was that? On July fourth, right? Wasn't there a president who died from eating what? too many cherries? No, there was definitely a president who died. We're from gonna you. we'll find that. All show. right, but this is not him. This <laughs> well, is not he. You really worked the interns hard. In don't the
3: bathtub, you? he died in the bathtub. That's he, my no. he
2: died uh, like the like the czarina. What was her name? Uh, the Empress Catherine. No, he didn't die that way. Oh, that would God. really be
1: horrible. How did he die? So he died. Okay, so the the cause of death is almost certainly congestive heart failure, and he, apparently he had had a series of undiagnosed heart attacks in the months before. That's the but the the occasion of his death is the good part. Harding died abruptly in bed as his wife read to him a flattering article about himself. <laughs> Never have your wife read a flattering article. Died happy. Article. He died somewhat
2: happy. Not as happy as he would have been with uh, Miss German Sympathizer.
3: Good point.
1: Are mistresses disabling these days? Yes, the if you're
3: president, I think we've basically ruled out... Men with mistresses from the presidency, and we're just going to have to live without them. Really? So oh, be it. It yeah. doesn't bother me a whole do you, lot.
1: Do you find that well, controversial? Her statement? Well, no, but there are certainly all these men who, with mistresses who who remain in the House and Senate. That may be a different situation. I think that's that's different. I mean, the I said per- the
3: presidency. Presidents
2: yeah. are fly specked in in such a way, and you know, we want our presidents to be. I, I think it just goes to this question of you don't want your president to. You don't want to think of your president as a liar, and obviously having an extramarital affair axiomatically makes you a liar of some sort.
3: Also, it's a big distraction, right? I mean, that's the biggest downside in some ways is that then there's this question of embarrassment and all this attention going to this issue that has nothing to do with the good of the nation. I mean, that's what, what if was so—
1: had a mistress? I mean, it doesn't sound like Warren Harding had her as a mistress while he was president. Their affair seemed to have stopped before he was president. If you, you mean, had, it, it, and it came you, out
2: during the presidency that I you had a mistress,
1: yeah, you're talking it came about out, theoretic- yeah, theoretically it came out that pro- had it ultimately a depends on what the first lady says, isn't it? I mean, isn't that the or, or even that you, you had, would or have even to it's atone. known going, you like Newt Gingrich basically had mistresses, he ran for president, yeah, yeah, yeah and, and I don't think elected, that that's but,
3: what disqualified him from office. There were so many other reasons for him not to be elected. Who cared about that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, there John McCain wasn't there. Well, I guess there was never. Those were all couched in these very. Allegedly, non- I think it's possible that you term. could
3: have had, but then you would have to figure out a very savvy way of making penance. And yes, Jeff's right. Your wife would have to be totally on board for forgiving you very publicly. Right.
2: And this is what happens in marriages. And I forgive him. That's the only way to we're assuming that we're assuming and we're and talking about a male down? president and a female first spouse. We
3: are assuming
2: not that I had really well-developed feelings about Warren Harding one way or the other, but this kind of makes me more sympathetic to the man. Like he had, he was was roiled emotionally and he was a confused and complicated being, emotional, sexual being. And, you know, sometimes we we tend to neuter these guys and, and, and feel like they don't have inner lives. And so there's something weirdly... Charming about this. Maybe it's the distance that we have from it, and that we don't really care about Warren Harding one way or the other. But there's something. It's a reminder that uh, these people are people.
1: Beautifully said. Thank I, you. They, that is exactly. Is right. that
2: something Dickerson would have said? Is that yeah. It well,
1: actually it is very Dickerson. I'm trying to channel. I really am. Although he probably would have been more morally disapproving. Oh, well, he would I have folded so. his arms. Well, no. I oh, no. He I believes know. in sin. He does believe in sin. He believes that people are sinners. He believes in redemption.
3: He would. He, I bet he finds these letters charming too. We can ask him next week.
1: All right, let's go to cocktail chatter when you're when you're when you're having <laughs> a conversation this, wait, with your wait, penis. Wait, Doesn't that count? <laughs> what do you count? say, <laughs> Jerry? I want to talk to you about. Um, so, Emily, what is your what's do your you <laughs> the do you think, oh, other, do you think other
2: presidents had names for the penises? Or this is the only one. That's the interesting. What question. do you think?
1: Richard Nixon called his tricky dick. Good hey hey ho. Well this actually I think Jerry it. Ford called his tricky dick. <laughs> I I proposed this as a story was what is the male nickname that, for penises because there's like you know John Thomas and Dick and now there's Jerry. If you go back again if you go back to medieval England are people saying you know my my uh, my Richard the Lionhearted or something? <laughs> I would like to know the answer. I
2: don't know the answer. I thought that was a rhetorical question.
3: No, no, not at all. It's a deep historical investigation, which Slate is about to launch.
1: Can not you put an intern on that? That would be hostile work environment. An army
3: of interns, Jeff. That's a big priority. Hostile work
1: environment. So, Emily, what is your chatter?
3: I am making amends for my digs at the World Cup by offering up a soccer chatter, which I don't know. You can shoot it down, but I think it's a good idea. So I'm going to put it out there. So... Even I know that a couple of important games got decided on penalty kicks this week, right? The Netherlands won one against Costa Rica. Then they lost, uh, right? And then they lost yesterday against Argentina. Okay, good. I got that part right. So penalty kicks just completely suck. I feel this deeply (laughs) as a soccer mom because if an important game gets decided by a penalty kick and your kid misses, it's yucky, awful. And I feel this way for the professionals, too. So – Here's my alternative, which is not my idea, It comes from my friend Caleb who actually plays soccer. How about instead you have yet another overtime period in which you in five or three minute intervals take a player off the field? So you take how many do you start with? Like eleven. First you have ten, then nine. You keep going until somebody scores.
1: I'm virtually certain this is not Caleb's idea, number one. I've heard this other places. It has its That's own. That's not set a of response problem. to well, the content just, of it. It's it's like not a terrible idea hockey does something like it but the problem that you get in overtime these overtimes is that the players are just done they are gutted if you look at the end of a of a overtime in a professional soccer game those guys cannot play anymore and it becomes horrible and ugly the the penalty kicks was a solution that they came up with because let extending play beyond 120 minutes was causing injury, and it was just it was the, the game became impossible.
3: So
2: could I you game it, so this th- though
1: if you knew
3: ahead of time?
1: Penalty kicks are unbelievably exciting. It is unbelievably exciting, but they
3: feel so random, don't they?
1: I mean, it's not the same as someone scoring a goal in regulation. But the point is that you can't just force it to go on and on until some. It wouldn't be it, your model. It wasn't. It wouldn't be like real soccer anyway, because you'd end up like three against three. I think playing it could on be fun to watch,
3: couldn't you prepare Penalty for the are tiredness are problem by
2: Penalty- keeping, keeping some people off the field? You know, listening to this conversation is like watching soccer for me, by the
1: way. Which to say, <laughs> I don't understand what's what you're even talking about. I don't about. even, I just, I am done with you people. I'm done, Emily's now, Emily's trying to, to all like of soccer. All of a sudden we're you people. Trying to like soccer by tr- attempting to ruin the game with her cr- Idea, cockeyed with theories, their crazy ideas, <laughs> and then and then you over here. Well, I just, I try, you, I did try. Why do you do your cocktail chatter? We'll see. We'll see what. Uh, well,
2: you no, I I didn't understand that it was supposed to be light. Ch- I'm trying to learn. Uh, I should have called Dickerson to find out. No, so I you told me to come do this. So I read everything on the internet over the last four days, and I found this really. Interesting essay by Michael Ignatieff in the New York Review of Books that I wanted to talk about, about the challenges to, you know, the inevitability of democratic change across the developing world. But then um, I actually was on Breitbart a couple hours ago and I found something that was so perfectly stupid that I wanted to talk Perfect. about. Perfect. But better. shouldn't I wait, – wait, shouldn't I have a No, no. You, a, a you get the Ignatieff – Credit uh, uh, No! no! I, that was clever Don't the worry. way I got the Ignatiev. Yeah, and the Breitbart. New York Review of Books, I read it. And no, 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 but this is perfect because I it just for some reason this week it just sums up everything stupid. Um it's a headline in Breitbart. It says Muslim prayer rug found on Arizona border by independent American security contractors. And I thought, that is perfect. <laughs> it's got everything. It's like it's like in and, and so I was reading it. I was hoping, by the way, that that some <laughs> what, what is the expression? Independent American security contractors. <laughs> Contractor referred to it as a Benghazi rug, because then it would have been like like orgasmically perfect. But this is a this is a great story. I mean, I'm not going to read the whole story, you can go find it on the internet. But it just gets at everything it gets at everything crazy and stupid. And it gets at sort of the serious issues. The border is a hugely serious issue. Uh terrorism is a hugely serious issue. Uh, Balancing civil liberties and the desire to have security hugely huge, important issue. Was the
3: rug actually on the border? Like, well, physically? I can't. You know, the
2: story. It's not. By the way, it's not the best written story in the world. Oh, I'm um, so, so. And sad. no, but I want to. Uh, it's just fantastic. Wait,
1: this is uh, the, the guy wait, put the wait the rug over the. That's when wire. wait. This is the yeah. this is the
2: independent American security contractor talking. That's when I saw this thing laying around, and I was like, "What the hell is that?" <laughs> we walked over there, and I didn't want to pull at it, or not knowing what was on it. I I don't know what that means i poked a bit at it with a stick and noticed some of the arabic writing and was just like oh boy i snapped a couple of photos and then went out on our patrol that is that's that's really that's really you know what it is it's little tiny guatemalan muslims being sent over the border to, to i don't know what the hell they're doing but it's just like it gets at every piece of paranoia that we've been talking well, using about children and, as
1: agents now ch- you know using I, it's just
2: like ha- the, the ability of some people to take serious issues and turn
1: them stupid is just unbelievable to me take that warren harding yeah that was a great chatter jeff that was much better than whatever you were going to oh really Michael, you, you don't want to hear like perfect uh, chatter. blah 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 okay so i couldn't think of a chatter because all i've been doing is is uh interviewing porn stars apparently but um yeah, you know you already by the, used by the up way, your chatter was, is
3: what you meant to say
1: I did So but you was... were
2: interviewing live in person? Yeah. I don't think I've ever met a porn star. I Is it th- interesting?
1: She was delightful. Yeah. Absolutely delightful. Great spokesperson for her profession. Really? Really. I a have... credit to her people. A was credit... like... She was utterly appealing, smart Funny, self-aware. Well, I look forward to reading or whatever be, it is you're doing over there. It'll be airing. It'll be part of a podcast. Oh, uh, so my excuse for chatter is the news this week that Crumbs, the cupcakes yeah. chain, closed got me thinking about this artisanal food trends and, and just thinking back, you know, you had like when we were in college, there was the original frozen yogurt craze and that went out for a while and then there was our, like fancy ice cream and then frozen yogurt came back. Then regular yogurt, there are regular yogurt stores and now there's the kind of gelato craze. But in Los Angeles seems to be the ground zero for all of this. There There is going to be um, melted cheese, like the grilled cheese. Grilled cheese. Yeah, me, that's something cheese. that's coming. Grilled cheese, it? Yeah. it seems to be coming. I, for I dessert? Two different. All the <laughs> other things were dessert. That's true. Those were all desserts. But you like chopped salads and burgers, those are other trendoid things that are not dessert that have made it across the But country. what's the next next? What's after grilled cheese? Um, there seems to be a lot of tea. I tea. think tea may be coming. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did I write down here? Well, there was the bread pudding one, but I just don't think that's going to make it. That's
3: what I was thinking of, that crazy store we saw in but San Francisco. But toast.
1: Oh, I, went to, I had an amazing toast. Toast, definitely. Amazing oh. toast. $7.00. Toast. And also those stores that sell
2: cereal, or is that over? Is this cereal that's over that over. happened. That's not artisanal. A toast? Oh, that's not
1: artisanal. Cereal's uh, not artisanal. Cer- cereals can be artisanal. That would be. That's a business. Granola could that's be artisanal. That's a business. That's good, a business. Good job. Okay, let's do the credits. The Gabfest is produced by Mike Volo. Thank you, Mike. Mike is a pizza bagel. Do you know what that means? Yes. He's a monster I- pizza. Do you, you know what it means. Yes. I wonder if our listeners know what that means. Is that like a phrase that people? I know? don't
3: know what it means. All
1: right, we won't think say. about it for ten seconds. Okay, you're not a pizza bagel, Emily. You're a bagel. Our oh, intern is okay. Max Tawney. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers, who I saw in L. A. this week and had two meals with. He has become a vegan. Did you guys know that? Bowers is now a vegan. Um, I
3: didn't realize that was new.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, he was all. He basically eats only hummus, which that's pretty vegan. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has lots of links to what we talked about today. Max is stirring conversation on our show page, on our uh, Facebook page, which is Facebook.com slash GabFest. He's also tweeting as promiscuously as Warren Harding at slate gabfest as the Twitter account. You can email us your love letters to GabFest at Slate.com. Do not send selfies, especially not if you're Warren Harding. You can subscribe to the GapFest on iTunes, leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, subscribing, commenting, leaving a rating really helps us. So please do that. You can find it by searching for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and Jeff Goldberg, I'm Jerry Plotz. Back with you next week.
3: Step into the world of power